His pulse surged in him, the thrill of creation, the ragged awe of making something from nothing. Chapter 5, page 34, The Dream Thieves. Hi, I'm Shannon. And I'm Navita. And, and we're, we're the, the Raven, Raven Girls. Girls. Welcome to our Raven Circle podcast. Where we talk about six dysfunctional teenagers and their complete lack of flirting technique. I mean, aren't you supposed to wait until your third anniversary to give leather? <laughs> this is episode 17 and we're covering chapters four through seven of The Dream Thieves. And we will also be taking a deep dive on a brief history of the Anglo-Saxons in Britain. Woohoo, very brief. Disclaimers, this is an analysis podcast. We'll be discussing the Raven Cycle as a cycle. This means we are spoilerific. So you probably will have wanted to have read the books before listening. We'll use pronunciations from the audiobooks, and page numbers are referenced from the paperback editions. And a disclaimer from me, this podcast has a Teen Plus rating. There will be canon levels of adult content, including Ronin swearing, 300 Foxway drinking, Kavinsky lewdness, and there is no gray man violence in this episode. Okay, just a quick announcement. Yay! I am hoping to do the giveaway that we talked about doing back when we thought we were going to be doing this in August or September. (laughs) So just keep an eye out on social media because Mm -hmm. we'll put up what the giveaway rules will be and whatever announcements will happen. So I expect that it'll run for a couple of weeks in January. Cool. Are you ready to go? Let's do this thing. All right. We're going to do a little brief introduction on one of our characters. Mm-hmm. Who Navita loves and I do not. <laughs> you admitted it's your favorite villain. <laughs> By process of elimination. It's valid. <laughs> uh, We're talking about Kavinsky. Yes. Joseph Kavinsky. And I'll let you go first. Is there anything you want to say about Um, Kavinsky? (laughs) Okay, so Kavinsky is a fellow Aguilambi student. He's from New Jersey, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And he's a total asshole. Correct. (laughs) All of those things are correct statements. Yes. (laughs) He's, like, notorious throughout all of Henrietta. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, that jerk. Mm -hmm. Blue hates him. (laughs) <laughs> and so, therefore, Shannon, by extension. Not exactly. <laughs> but I'm kidding. <laughs> He's a total dude bro, and dude bros suck. <laughs> Apologies to any dude bros who may be listening to this podcast. No, like, not guys, dude bros. There's a I, specific... I, I know. Apologies <laughs> to any dude bros who may be listening to this podcast. <laughs> if such an animal exists, please let us know. <laughs> All right. So one of the things I want to get right out of the way is that I do love Kavinsky. Mm-hmm. I love him because he is awful and terrible and complicated. Right. And I think that Kavinsky is probably the most polarizing character in the Raven Cycle. I still see little spats of fandom wars about Kavinsky. And it's like the book's been out for you know four <laughs> years. Mm-hmm. But... 
I think it's a testament to the fact that he's complicated that so many people do have such strong feelings for Kavinsky. And I love him, but I'm not a Kavinsky apologist. Right. Like, I do recognize that he has terrible things that he does. I also recognize that he's had terrible things happen to him, mm-hmm. at least from the POV that we get, which in last episode, I made a point of saying we never see Kavinsky's point of view. Right. Never, ever He's the only character that we don't get a POV for. Mm -hmm. So that alone, to me, is really interesting in the way that the character is done. Mm -hmm. He's a fascinating character. He really is. And the other things that I think are important to think about as we read through this book is that Kavinsky knows about Ronan the whole time this book is taking place. Right. And not only that, but Declan knows about Kavinsky the whole time this book is taking place. Mm-hmm. And Kavinsky knows about the black market the whole time this book is taking place. Mm-hmm. And he's done business with Lamonnier in the past. And that's revealed in The Raven King right. when Lamonnier sees the Evo outside of the Fresh Eagle. I forget, Food Lion, which one it is. And they come in and the gray man's actually driving it. Mm-hmm. So for all we know, Kavinsky's family has been wrapped up. I mean, that's completely metatextual, but he has been involved with this sort of seedy underworld right. type situation. So he's not as like surface dude bro, maybe as one might think. Mm-hmm. When you actually look at those are the things that he's bringing to the table. And then one of the last things is... Maggie had written a post about Kavinsky with a song from the Irrepressibles called In This Shirt. And she said, if I had written the book from Kavinsky's point of view, it would have been a very different book. Mm -hmm. And this song is so sad. (laughs) And it's a little obsessive, but it's also just like, I don't know, it makes me cry. And it particularly makes me cry thinking about like, this is a POV we never get to see. Right. And Maggie has said that Kavinsky was one of her favorite characters. And unfortunately, because of the controversy in the fandom, she doesn't ever want to write about him again. And that's really sad to have an author have to give up someone that they've loved so much that they created. Mm -hmm. So those are just the things that I like to keep in mind when I'm going through the book. Because I think that they put a lens on it that if you're not coming from that POV, you might be easily dismissing someone who's really complicated. All right. All right. So chapter four is a gray man point of view chapter. The gray man moves in, does some exploring and gets a call from Green Mantle. Mm -hmm. The gray man had a graduate degree and something completely unrelated to roughing people up. Can you get graduate degrees and roughing people up? I knew academia was tough, but this sounds a little brutal. <laughs> academia is brutal, but I don't know that it's brutal in that way. There are no fisticuffs in the library. I don't think so. He had written a not unsuccessful book called Fraternity in Anglo-Saxon Verse, and it had been required reading in at least 17 college courses around the country. I love the idea of a poetic hitman. Yeah. <laughs> I also love picturing him relaxing and making himself happy by looking at all the syllabi with his book on them and then having a beer. A beer or seven. Uh (laughs) Seven seems like an oddly specific number of beers, Mm -hmm. but I also love the description, a small burst of fireworks to his heart. Mm -hmm. It's just very sweet. 
He's a hitman because it's a job he can approach with pragmatism, and it allows him to read and study at his convenience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because poetry is frivolous, right? I mean, it sounds like it could be Thunderdome up in here. (laughs) (laughs) And then after chatting with Declan Lynch, chatting... Hmm. He checked into the Pleasant Valley bed and breakfast. It sounds nice, actually. Yeah, it does. <laughs> the gray man's sense of humor, and of course, by extension, Maggie's, because his dry life observations seem very much like hers. Uh-huh. They just really get me in a happy place. <laughs> and one of them is a mug with an anatomically incorrect rooster on it. <laughs> <laughs> and and of course, even his luggage is in shades of gray. Mm-hmm. And then he says, a fortnight in your company. It seems like a very poetic thing to say. And the gray man takes off his gray jacket to reveal his shoulders. I love the fact that both Patty and Shorty give an appreciative gander. Uh (laughs) And then the line, three consenting adults mutually enjoying an alcoholic beverage after a long day. The three emerged from the other side of the silence, firm friends. And it does sometimes work like that. What do you do? I'm a hitman. Tough to find work these days, is it? And I'm like, it's Noah trying to tell everyone he's dead all over again. Yeah, I'm not sure they're disbelieving. There seems to be absolutely no pretense. I, I wonder if maybe when you're in the bed and breakfast business, you just figure that it takes all types. I Maybe? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And then he establishes his timeline here. It's two weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's the timeline of the book. Mm-hmm. You have such intense eyes. I got them from my mother, he lied. The only thing he'd ever gotten from his mother was an inability to tan. And I find this exchange hilarious. Yeah, it's really good. It's very much like his comment, the only thing his father had taught him was how to pronounce trebuchet. (laughs) Neglectful parents, I'm guessing, of course, with the clues that we get later. Mm -hmm. The gray man's ability to get people to like him just cracks me up. I love it. (laughs) Yeah, I love it too. He charms effortlessly, was my note. Uh Uh-huh. I'm sure it does help in his line of work. Mm Mm-hmm. His mansion basement. basement <laughs> I just is, thought it was weird that it was a mansion, but I guess bed and breakfast. Mm-hmm. It's all quilts and antique cradles and portraits of now dead Victorian children. It smelled like 200 years of salt ham. It's such an evocative description and very Southern slash Virginian. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it makes me think of my partner's aunt's house. Does she have a lot of roosters? It seems terrifying. No, no roosters. No live roosters. Well, these are all fake roosters. Lots of porcelain (laughs) dolls. Oh, okay. (laughs) His unpacking is great. Slacks and cosmetics and stolen artifacts. I saw a lot of the repetition of threes in lists of items in these chapters. Uh And he thinks about the professor. Since I first listened to these on audiobooks, I thought that that was capitalized like the name of a James Bond villain. (laughs) (laughs) That actually would kind of make sense. It would absolutely make sense. And he grasps the situation with the energy almost immediately. And he's really good at what he does. He really is. He's a very smart man. He says, perhaps it was the town itself. The entire place seemed charged. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he'd wanted to believe in it. Magic and intrigue. It's Echoes of Blue wanting magic, but being the pragmatist. Right. 
looking at his syllabi, listening to the flaming lips, and he's happy until the phone rings. Right. The gray man's burst of joy fizzled. It's so sad, but Mm. we do get the first sort of hint of his brother. The number on the screen was not a Boston number. There is some irony in the fact that his book is about fraternity, yet his brother is his worst fear. I think that's intentional in a lot of ways. Yeah. Colin Greenmantle, the professor who paid his rent. The only person with eyes more intense than the gray man's. Mm -hmm. And how old does one need to be in order to get a doctorate and a professorship? And he's been working with Green Mantle for five years now. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. 22 plus uh, 35 or so. So he could be a professor at 35? I would say so. And then they, they've been working together for five years, so Green Mantle's more like 40? Something like. Okay. Or maybe even a little younger, because like if I graduate undergraduate at 22, and then like six years or so more of schooling to get your PhD... Mm-hmm. I don't remember if his age is specified in blue, lily, lily, blue, but mm-hmm. it was just interesting. Yeah. It's odd to try to, like, figure out how old people are in Right, this. yeah, yeah. And kind of fun. He's thinking about his name. If he resisted using it for long enough, he himself might forget his own name and become someone else entirely. And that idea has such a deep sadness to it. Mm-hmm. It's very sad. And I love how complicated he is right from the start. Mm-hmm. He's full of contradictions and it evokes our sympathy. It's like not at all what one would expect from the person you're led to believe is the bad guy. Right. Green Mantle's immediately like, have you found it? Have you found it? And he's like, not yet. Well, you mean no. No is not the same as not mm-hmm. yet. For quite a long time now, the gray man has been hunting for things that couldn't be found, couldn't be bought, couldn't be acquired. And his instincts are telling him that the gray one was not a piece that was going to come quickly. And his instincts are right. Right. And it's another cadence of three things. Oh, yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. He said what Declan Lynch had already known. There have always been other people looking for it. Jeez, Declan's barely 18 and having to deal with basically like people coming after his whole family. Right. It's a very ominous statement, Mm -hmm. for sure. They haven't always been in Henrietta, says Green Mantle. And who is it that Green Mantle knows is looking right now? Well, probably Green Mantle's father-in-law. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because when he kills the two guys later, they say, we didn't get his name. He's French. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So page 185. Le Yeah. The Lumineers. The Luminescence. (laughs) All right. We are going to... Put in our deep dive here. Uh-huh. All right. All right. What? That's Old English Anglo-Saxon for listen up. <laughs> and I'll come back to that later. We're going to talk about the Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> party, party, Anglo-Saxon party. <laughs> they were people of Germanic tribes, the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes, who made their way from northern Germany and southern Scandinavia to the British Isles. They came into power after the collapse of Roman rule of Britain. Rem never had solid control of all of the British Isles mm-hmm. and built Hadrian's Wall across the island to keep the Picts from invading from what is now Scotland right. to the north. And I put a link to the tourist info page for Hadrian's Wall in the show notes because the site has pretty Picts and a cool timeline. Mm-hmm. Gildas, a British historian, says that these Germanic warbands were hired to protect the Romanized parts of the British Isles when the Picts finally broke through the wall in 367. Mm-hmm. So Britain was under constant attack from the Picts to the north and the Irish to the west. 
In an attempt in unification, they appointed a warlord called Vortigern as head man, and he enlisted the help of the Saxons, and this led to disaster. Mm-hmm. The Saxons staged a coup at, the, at a meeting of British and Saxon nobility, murdering their British counterparts in the middle of the meeting. They spilled Vortigern, but only so that they could force him to cede large chunks of land in southern England to them, thus setting him up as a powerless puppet. Right. And although England as a nation wouldn't exist for hundreds of years after the Anglo Saxons arrived, they carved out seven different kingdoms Northumbria, East Anglia, Essex, Sussex, Kent, Wessex, and Mercia? Mercia which still function as regional descriptors in England today. The seven kingdoms shared aspects of culture, language, and religion, but were often at war with one another and the remaining Britons. Mm -hmm. At this point, the Britons had been converted to Christianity, but the Saxons were still pagan, worshipping the Norse pantheon. So in 597, Pope Gregory the Great sent St. Augustine to attempt to convert them. He succeeded partly by telling them that the Christian God would grant them victories in battle if they converted. Of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it worked so well that the Saxons converted their fellow tribesmen back home in Germany. Right. Eventually, some of these groups decided that the Christian God wasn't living up to these promises <laughs> and became apostate. And so Theodore of Tarsus and Hadrian the African are sent to reform the church in Britain. Theodore set off bearing the wisdom of the Greek East, theology, poetry, grammar, biblical commentaries, and a litany of saints, one of whom, the Syrian Saint George, would later become the patron saint of England. Mm Mm-hmm. And the most celebrated of all Anglo-Saxon kings is Alfred the Great, which we will be doing a whole deep dive on later, I believe. Okay. You're like, surprise! (laughs) I forgot we talked about that one. That's fine. When the other kingdoms had fallen to Viking invasion, Wessex, ruled by Alfred, managed to stand alone, despite the fact that he ruled during a time when, by his own words, everything was ruined and burned. He made education and learning a priority. He gathered scholars from Wales, Germany, and France, and had them translate important books into English because he felt that Christian kings should be patrons of learning. The Anglo-Saxon era ended in 1066 when the Normans, led by William the Conqueror, conquered the island. (laughs) The history of this battle is depicted in the Bayou Tapestry. It sounds like the thing you find in Louisiana, but it is not. Right. (laughs) And of course, we couldn't talk about the Anglo-Saxons in connection with the Raven Cycle and not at least mention Anglo-Saxon poetry. Mm -hmm. One of the most commonly known pieces of Anglo-Saxon poetry is Beowulf. It's quite possibly the oldest surviving long story in Old English. It's done in the style of a Norse Edda, epic poem, rather than forms more commonly found in Anglo-Saxon poetry. The surviving manuscript is found in a Noel Codex, currently housed in the British Library. It's one of the four major Anglo-Saxon literature codices, along with the Vercelli book, the Exeter book, and the Cademan manuscript. The story is set in Scandinavia. Beowulf, a hero of the Geats, which is a great word, comes to the aid of Hrothgar, the king of the Danes whose mean hall in Hirat has been under attack by a monster known as Grindel. After Beowulf slays him, Grindel's mother attacks the hall and is then also defeated. Victorious, Beowulf goes home to Geatland, Gotland in modern Sweden, and later becomes king of the Geats. After a period of 50 years has passed, Beowulf defeats a dragon, but is mortally wounded in the battle. After his death, his attendants cremate his body and erect a tower on a headland in his memory. Mm-hmm. 
And your partner found an interesting translation of Beowulf. It's from Beowulf by All, which is described as, This project was conceived in early 2016 to counter the publications and statements of a small number of Anglo-Saxonists, whose comments and agenda were and are elitist, exclusionary, misogynistic, and anti-feminist. This is a community project where anyone was invited to contribute translations of Beowulf to form a new version of the poem. I just think that's a really cool idea. Yeah, it is. All right, so I'm going to read like just the first stanza. Beowulf by All, edited by Elaine Treharn and Jean Abbott. What? We've heard of the spear Danes of bygone days, of the glory of those tribal kings, how those noblemen performed brave deeds, often scowled scaffing from enemies' troop, from many nations captured mead benches, he terrified the earls. Earlier he had first been found helpless, he felt comfort for that. He grew up under the clouds, he gained in honors, until each of those surrounding peoples over the Wales Road had to submit, give him tribute. That was a good king. Shannon got to do Ancient Poetry Corner. I did! Yay! Maybe we need to find a bit of music for Ancient Poetry Corner. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right. And just a little bit of history uh, or trivia, I should say. The poem that the Gray Man recites to 300 Fox Way is called The Wanderer. And that is actually found in the Exeter book. And we'll likely go into a little bit about that once we get to episode 19. And then if anyone here wants really in-depth knowledge of British history, I highly recommend the podcast done by a friend of ours, Jamie Zern, Nee Jeffers, of the British History Podcast. He is incredibly smart and funny. He speaks Welsh and supposedly did a section on Alfred the Great that made people weep. And then I was telling Shannon that I have Beowulf-related PTSD because in high school, I did Beowulf, a rock musical. (laughs) Wow. Where I played Grendel's mother. (laughs) Yes, you did. Yes, I did. And so... I cannot deal with Beowulf. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Beowulf's mother is supposed to be a badass. Like, she, I, she is a badass. And I do still have the attack on the hall song mostly memorized. Wow. But I found a little bit of it. The book and lyrics were by Ken Pickering, and the uh-huh. music was by Keith Cole. Okay. And I have no idea who decided that a bunch of high schoolers were going to do Beowulf a rock musical in high school. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the the part of Grendel's mother was pretty great. I got to throw people around nice. and, <laughs> and and be really scary and spooky and also wear a disco dress because it was a rock musical. <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to sing a bit of it? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I've a nasty disposition, evil of my own volition, spawned in sloth by mutant creatures. Soon you'll feel my finer features. Puny we humans, leave your ablutions. Prepare your skin to feel my pollution. That's awesome. <laughs> and then it keeps going. And then it's like, you killed my baby. Now you'll discover all the fury of a fuming mother. <laughs> 
so that awful. Is awesome. It was so bad. It was That's so awesome. bad. Awesome. <laughs> All right. All right. With that, we should probably get back to you. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Getting back into it. Chapter five, a Ronin POV. Ronan pulls a mystery like so many others out of his dream, a puzzling puzzle box, and goes to find middle-of-the-night Gansey working on miniature Henrietta. Ronan tries to explain how dreaming works for him, but some things are not meant for words. He woke like a sailor scuttles a ship on rocks, plunging, heedless, with as much speed as he could muster, braced for the impact. Yeah, I've definitely woken up like that before. And Ronan had dreamt he had driven home. The road was twisted as a light bulb's filament. All corkscrew turns and breathless lifts through the broken terrain. Yep, I'm familiar. Kiss your butt curves, we call them. (laughs) Night, when it came to the barns, was several shades darker than it was in Henrietta. Ronan had dreamt this drive again and again, more times than he had ever driven it in real life. I don't think that he could even drive when they were kicked out. Mm, I don't think so. This comes up later, but maybe I'll ask it here. Like, 15? Do people actually have to wait till 16 to get their driver's license? I know you were in West Virginia, but... You you can get your your learners at 15. Mm -hmm, Right. But but you have to have some, like, an adult in the car. Right. Okay. The single eternal light in the room with his silent mother. Fairy tale imagery again, and it feels so Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, but in his sleep, he never made it home. Even in his sleep? Yeah. Just after waking, after dreaming, his body belonged to no one. He looked at it from above like a mourner at a funeral. Both dream thieving and scrying are described as out-of-body experiences. Mm, Absolutely. The description of Ronan's out-of-body experience, as you were saying, I find it really interesting. His disconnect and inability to recognize himself and his worry that he'll be stuck is both spooky and it speaks of his inner turmoil. Right. Ronan didn't look at all like how he felt on the inside. He doesn't feel on the inside like he looks on the outside. Mm -hmm. Then goes on to describe looking very destructive. Right. Anything that didn't impale itself on the sharp lines of the sleeping boy's cruel mouth would be tangled in the merciless hooks of his tattoo pulled beneath his skin to drown Mm -hmm. but the sharpness is something that ronan recognizes as a skin that he puts on to hide his cream puff soul Mm -hmm. and i'm just like oh gosh poor ronan being the one to find his dad like he did and like and not being able to forgive himself for being asleep when it happened to the point that he just he can't sleep anymore right that whole passage is so breathless he thinks died no been killed not died beaten to death with the tire iron that was still lying beside him when ronan had found him a weapon still coated in his blood and his brains and the better part of his face another instance of a list Mm -hmm. of three and then sleeping a feat never again to be performed it's just it's like no wonder yeah that would that would mess you up. Yeah. <laughs> and the Lynch brothers were wealthy princes of Virginia, but they were exiles. And that also feels very fairy tale. Right. The will states, including their mother. So Niall must have known that Aurora would fall asleep. Then has he seen this before? He asked me the same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Declan had said, it doesn't matter. Mom is nothing without him. We may as well go. And it's really important to recognize that Declan knows the truth about his father and his mother and Ronan the whole time that this fight is going on. Uh So he must know that she is asleep and why. Mm -hmm. We have to fight, Ronan had insisted. Declan had already turned away. She's not fighting. This is such a good encapsulation of the two of them. Ronan's anger, his fury, and in this case, righteous indignation when faced with a problem. Mm-hmm. And Declan, knowing more than he lets on, accepts that a door is closed and just wants to change the direction. Right. Like, Ronan is fire, Declan is water. Right. On Monday, the Lynch brothers had stopped being friends, which is page 70 of the Raven Boys. I would think that this is the moment when that happened. Mm-hmm. And then his pulse surged in him, the thrill of creation, the ragged awe of making something from nothing. It was not the easiest thing to take something from a dream. It was not the easiest thing to take only one thing from a dream. Right. I'm reminded of the scene with Kala saying that Ronan is creating. Uh And that's page 156 of The Raven Boys. And I have so many questions about the puzzle box and so many theories. I think it's one of the most interesting details in the books. I love the puzzle box. It's so cool. Ronan had no secret more dangerous than this. Mm -hmm. You incredible creature. Creature was a good word for him, Ronan thought. What the hell am I? He has internalized the inhuman. Mm -hmm. This is also his question for God when he goes to church. Please, God, what am I? Tell me what I am. That's page 93. Mm -hmm. He listened to music or drank or went out into the streets or all three again. Right. And then Gansey works on his waist high model of Henrietta. It's so much taller than I was picturing it. (laughs) Also, one of the things I'm most excited about seeing in a TV show is the model of Henrietta. I may have said that already, but I'm so super excited about that. Neither could really help the other find sleep, but sometimes it was better just to know you weren't the only one awake. Yeah, as an insomniac, this is incredibly true. (laughs) And describing Gansey while he's working on the model. At night, he looked particularly small, or the warehouse looked particularly large. Ronan Mm -hmm. pictures Monmouth as a wizard's cave full of books and maps and surveying devices. A list of three. Mm -hmm. And then they have a comfortable silence as Ronan comes out and puts chains down. Mm-hmm. Gansey looked quaint and scholarly with his nighttime wire fames slid down his nose. Adorbs. Yeah. Also totally a grandpa. Yeah. Drink. <laughs> yeah. Vernon let Chainsaw down to entertain herself. She proceeded to turn over the wastebasket and go through the contents. It was a noisy process, rustling like a secretary at work. And this image amuses me greatly. Right. The scenario felt familiar and time-worn. They've been living together for almost two years. It's just a week or so shy of two years if the timeline given later is correct. To be fair, I spent far too much time dissecting the flow of events in this chapter. (laughs) But then Gansey had come into town with his crazy dream and his ridiculous Camaro. And this is what I was referencing. Mm -hmm. How old? He shouldn't be able to drive the Camaro because he'd only be 15 then. And he'd bought the building for cash. It was on its knees in the rye grass and the creeper, and he saved it. Mm -hmm. Gansey found Monmouth Manufacturing, like so many things, and he rescued it. Uh And then I've seen a lot of people misinterpret, in my opinion, this next line. The fall after Ronan and Gansey had become friends the summer before Adam. 
It's kind of awkward, but the timeline basically seems to lay out that Ronan and Gansey met in June, uh-huh. which would be the summer before Adam. And they spent that summer and fall, the fall after they became friends, pulling the stuff out of Monmouth. Mm-hmm. If Gansey had come to Henrietta a full year earlier, it wouldn't fit with the timeline of him being in Wales. So, unfortunately, I can't find my season one notebook with the timeline from the Raven Boys. Oh, no. So I might have to correct myself later, but I'm pretty sure that's where it falls. And the story of Gansey Smooth talking the police and helping him burn stuff. Oh, man. Yeah. Renan hadn't realized yet that Gansey could persuade even the sun to pause and give him the time. Yeah. That's a good description of, of how Gansey works. Very much so. And then there is a paragraph that gives the timeline of the June two years ago. And I got way too into finding the exact date Nia was killed. <laughs> and yes, I do believe I know it based on, and again, the premise that the book takes place in 2012, page 37 of The Dream Thieves and page 70 of The Raven Boys, <laughs> Niall Lynch was killed on June 16th, 2010. Okay. He would have been 39 years old. Okay. I can give the math at some point for folks who want it. But. <laughs> it was a bunch of flowers the first time, Ronan says when asked what the first thing he brought out of a dream was. And that's also the first thing he saw his dad bring back. Right. And that also references back to the Samuel Taylor Coleridge epigraph that I talked about last uh-huh. episode. But also, question mark, what about that flaming sword that Ronan pulled out and Declan saved from setting everyone on fire? Oh, Yeah. It's like, how old or young was Ronan when he first saw his father pull the flowers out of the dream? Mm -hmm. Because on page four, it says three years later, but that seems so late in life. Yeah. Because he would only be like 14. But obviously stuff had happened before that. So Mm -hmm. again, editing continuity. Right. (laughs) It was a haunted old wood, blue, blousy flowers growing in the dapples. And that's so easy to picture. Mm-hmm. Whispering trees with an often present dream companion, caves water and opal. Right. And we later learned that Orphan Girl has been with him since the very beginning. She was older when he was young. Uh-huh. The joy and terror of the moment, the heart-pounding thought, I'm just like my father. And you can totally feel that conflict here. Right. This seems to establish that it happened after he saw his father pull blue flowers out of his dream. So that would be only three years ago. Uh And just random questions. Do you mature into being a dreamer? I mean, he would have pulled Matthew out when he was three. So it seems like he's had the ability his whole life. Mm -hmm. But it also does seem like Niall was draining the ley line. So maybe Ronan just didn't have much energy to work with. Right. Gansey's eyes. His thoughtless expression was one of wonder and of pain. With Gansey, they were so often the same thing. I know we've talked a lot in the past about Adam just getting things, but Renan is being really observant here, too. Right. I also noted that this was a beautiful observation. Mm. I can sometimes control what I bring, but I can't control what I dream about. It's so interesting to see how his powers and control of them progress through this book and the rest of the cycle, and even the Opal short story. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of that in the Dreamer trilogy. Yeah. I love how through this whole conversation about dreaming, Chainsaw is just in the background, ripping stuff up in the wastebasket. She's just like a perfect little dream creature. (laughs) And Ronan tries to explain his alcoholism, but Gansey's dismissive. The dreams were more pleasant when he drank. Mm-hmm. They're mostly in Latin. Beg, beg pardon? Beg pardon? <laughs> uh, 
Yes, I love that exchange. Yeah, yeah. And then I just didn't know that it was Latin until I got older. And to me, this is proof that the dreaming is outside of him, not an internal construct. Uh There's no reason for that, Gansey said sternly, as if Ronan had heard a toy on the floor. Dad Gansey strikes again. 100%. (laughs) (laughs) No shit, Sherlock. I'm like, wow, it's been a long time since I heard that saying. I'll have to start saying it around you more often then, because I say it a lot. Uh, Do you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, am I in your dreams? Oh, yes, baby. It amused Ronan to say this a lot. He laughed enough that Chainsaw abandoned her paper shredding to verify that he wasn't dying. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, baby. (laughs) And then the very sad, wistful, Ronan sometimes dreamt of Adam too, the latter boy, sullen and elegant and fluently disdainful of dream Ronan's clumsy attempts to communicate. Oh, poor baby. That mm-hmm. is a very awkward crush dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Candy's like, do I speak Latin in your dreams? Dude, you speak Latin in real life. <laughs> Yeah. In familiar, familiar caves water, although Ronan surely hadn't been there before this spring. You were literally just thinking about your dream forest. Uh huh. <laughs> caves water. Arriving there for the first time had felt like a dream he'd forgotten. Coincidence? Because it's not. Yeah, and then Maggie hits you upside the head with the clue by four. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be aware enough to know I want it. Almost awake. I have to hold it. Lucid dreaming, but to the extreme. Mm -hmm. I don't understand. Neither did Ronan, but he didn't know how to say it any better. And Ronan is trying. Mm -hmm. He's just not usually a talker. There's not a whole lot of action he can take to demonstrate past what he's already done with the little plane. And then he tries to explain it in terms of having a premonition or intuition or a sixth sense with the sweaty handshake. Mm -hmm. I did explain it. No, you use nouns and verbs together in a pleasing but illogical form. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Old marrieds. It's a nightmare, man. It's when you dream of getting bit and when you wake up, your arm hurts. It's that. And I was like, you were saying last episode, Navita? Yeah, I've definitely, I've had these dreams Mm -hmm. and it's it's disconcerting to say the least. Mm. It was such a senseless rush that it left the real world pale and unsaturated for hours after. Sometimes Gansey found him and thought he was drunk. Sometimes he really was drunk. And again, the alcoholism goes away once he masters control of his dreaming. Mm-hmm. And then... A puzzle box, Gansey asks. What does that mean? That's just what it was called in the dream. The last phrase implies, at least to me, that it was called that by something else, not by Ronan himself. Right. And the box doesn't seem to be a puzzle. Like the box itself, it might be puzzling, but what is the puzzle that it's referring to? And my theory is that it's more the clue to the puzzle, the puzzle being the will. Mm Mm-hmm. And Gansey eyed Ronan over the top of his wireframes. Don't use that voice on me. <laughs> it's like super dad Gansey. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so Gansey looks at it and is like, okay, well, this is Latin. This is Greek. And is this Sanskrit? Is this Coptic? Who the hell knows what Coptic looks like? You, apparently. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of... <sighs> 
I'm sort of on that side, though, that he doesn't. This is like another part of the theory that he's gifted the box by Caves Water. Mm-hmm. And Ronan doesn't necessarily know what it's good for. I personally wonder if it was planted in Caves Water by Niall specifically to decode the will. Mm, possibly. It's just that why would he dream something that he absolutely needs in order to translate a portion of the will that he wouldn't even recognize needed this box? And like, it's just, it's to reverse engineer that for Ronan doesn't make sense. Something gave him the box as a clue to the will. I guess that's true, yeah. And it's interesting to me that watching the puzzle box working in real life gives Gainsey a headache because mm-hmm. it makes sense to me that something like that would necessarily run on dream logic and that would be kind of incomprehensible if seen in real life. Right. And then Pinhead stepped out of the void. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> if you didn't think I was going it, to make it had, a Pinhead I mean, it had to reference. be, It had to be said. <laughs> of course I'm going to make a pin. All right. Anyway, continue. <laughs> so it's translated the English into all these other languages. That's true in all of those. And then they specifically bring out the tira. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's odd that the first word that Ronan put in was tree. Coincidence? I, I think, think not. not. So sleep. Gansey gave him a look. Mm-hmm. So let's drive to the barns. Gansey gave him another look. <laughs> yeah. So let's go get some orange juice. Gansey said, okay. Yeah. They went and got some orange juice. Yeah. I find this so endearing and encapsulating of their relationship. Yeah, it's absolutely one of my favorites of their friendship exchanges, beard wars notwithstanding. Oh, God, the beard <laughs> wars. <laughs> and then real bros get OJ at 3.32 a.m. Also, how awesome would it have been if it was 6.21 a.m.? <laughs> All right. Okay, so chapter six is a Blue point of view chapter. Blue argues with Orla before work. Hanging out with the boys and playing with the puzzle blocks lifts her spirits until Kavinsky shows up. Mm-hmm. It starts off with Blue saying to Orla, you're an unbelievable phone tramp. And then Orla <laughs> replying, you're just jealous. Yeah. And they really do act more like siblings than cousins. But of course that makes sense because they spend so much time like they, they, they grew up in the to- same house. Yeah, they grew up together. And Orla says, you're just jealous that this isn't your job. Blue, I am not. But she kind of is, though. <laughs> a little. Like, yeah. Not specifically, but she actually talks about that later. That she doesn't like want the, to be psychic? Well, no, no, no. Like, it's not specifically the working as a psychic that she envies. It's the being different without trying. Which is sort of, yeah, it's sort of her same way of saying the same thing there. Right, yeah. Mm. The flare of her bell bottoms was capacious enough to hide small animals in. <laughs> I, I kind of want those pants. Okay. Luckily, Palazzo pants are coming back in style. They're not, <laughs> they're not bell bottoms, but they're good enough. And then here we get our reintroductory paragraph into 300 Foxway. Okay. Then Blue has some thoughts on how much she hates working at Nino's, but that she hasn't quit or gotten fired yet because it pays well. Poor kid, like, to have to stick with that. Mm-hmm. Waitressing required patience, a fixed and convincing smile, and the ability to continuously turn the other cheek. Yep. Blue possessed only one of these attributes at any given time, and it was never the one she needed. Right. And I do enjoy this side of Blue and another list of three. Yep. Yeah. 
I'm going to be boys who often thought rudeness was a louder form of flirting. Ugh, those kind of guys are so common and the worst. I mean, not everybody's soulmate can be so smooth as to call them a prostitute. <laughs> yeah, like, and... <laughs> Gainsy is awful in that scene. Yeah. Like, I called him on it very yeah. much so. <laughs> There's the question again of the ethnicity of the sergeant women. It's like, are they dark-skinned or tanned? Mm-hmm. Even when standing, Blue, barely five feet tall, barely came to Orla's deeply brown throat. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, ethnicity is of question there. Oh, and, and like, yeah, I know that feel. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so hard to get people to take you seriously when everybody's, like, literally looking down at you. Mm-hmm. She did envy Orla's ability to be different without even trying. Blue feels like she has to try so hard to be different, but she is different naturally. Yeah, I think Blue is really just searching for an identity beyond 300 Fox Way. That's really the crux of it. And then Orla says, don't lie to me, Blue. I can read your mind. (laughs) (laughs) Will Patton's reading of this line cracks me up every freaking time. Uh Or, like, galloping around, mimicking Gansey's accent cracks me up. Yeah. Mazda is a self-worth tied to my occupation. (laughs) She sounded like a drunk Robert E. Lee. First off, it's hilarious that there are three animals in one description. Orla crowed, galloping down the hall, stork-like. <laughs> Again, three. And I can't help but think of the old Warner Brothers cartoon rooster, Foghorn Leghorn, when yes. she does that accent. <laughs> Mom, make Orla go away. Sounds like, Mom, Orla's touching me. Uh-huh. Make her stop. Like, they're so ridiculous. <laughs> but I mean, what else is she supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's just really funny. It's like, you're, you're 16 or 18, Blue. Mm. Like <laughs> Ever since she was small, Blue had loved the ritual of a single card reading. It wasn't so much a clairvoyant experience as a 30-second bedtime story where Blue was always the hero. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea, and I can totally see that being comforting. Right. And it is really such a sweet way to put it. Mm-hmm. I do like the fact that it says that she's the hero in that story. And right. later she's like, I won't be a sidekick, which um, we'll get right to. Maybe the potential you bring out in other people is your something more. Your purpose is to make other people look good is a really shitty thing to tell your teenage daughter. Yeah. I, <laughs> Maura did ask if Blue wanted the real answer or the one she was going to like. That's true. And Mora is keeping something from her. Mm. It's a secret. Her father. Take a drink. (laughs) It wasn't enough. It was not her sole thought, her something more. That's my girl. Your worth is not what others can use you for. Yeah. And... (laughs) I'm just saying that is, I agree with you. That is a fairly cynical way to interpret what Maura was saying, That's though. True. Making That's other people better is a skill many people spend years trying to That's, learn. That's true. You know, that's a that's a skill. It is. I'm not going to be a sidekick. You should stop hanging out with millionaires then. Orla <laughs> might have a little bit of a point. Yeah, no, she definitely does. And yet later, Blue is told to take advantage of this fact to travel with the trees in your eyes, stars in your heart. Mm-hmm. I think these boys are a part of her life. Right. Absolutely. It was true that she looked a lot cooler at school than she did surrounded by psychics and rich boys. Aw, poor Blue. You are cool, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> It's about what I do, not what I am. Mm -hmm. I'm like, right on. 
It had been a lot easier when Adam, the poorest of the lot, had seemed more like her. And the bargain with Caveswater changed a lot of things really fast. Yeah. This, to me, it's sad. It almost feels like she's using Adam. And I mean that in kind of like an unconscious way, unconsciously. But we have discussed the fact that he was her gateway into the group. That was her safe place for her to land initially. Right. So it makes sense. But... Like, Adam shouldn't be relegated to just, like, the other, you know, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think we get more of her realizing that later on. Yeah. The others were team power, and she was supposed to be team ingenuity or something. And I'm not sure exactly what she's trying to say here. Yeah, it almost circles from not wanting to be useful to wanting to be useful, like, with team ingenuity. Mm. I'm making midlife crisis, says says Maura. <laughs> oh, I guess I'll have a slice if you're making it already. It's like, I love their relationship. I do too. <laughs> because she couldn't come to them, they'd brought the Glendower discussion to her. Ha, huh, she thought, take that, Orla. Yeah. <laughs> Smiley face, I <Yeah>. say. <laughs> Blue's thoughts about how different her view of the boys is now versus how she thought of them the first time. And it's like the circumstances have changed a lot in just a few weeks because it hasn't been that long. It's been about six weeks. Yeah, you're right. Whatever her identity crisis was, it seemed to live at home, not with the boys. Mm -hmm. Adam says, it's a wizard in a box. Noah says, it'll do your homework. Renan says, and has been dating your girlfriend. (laughs) And I'm like, yep, that sums up those three. Yeah, I don't know why, but Ronan referencing Blue having a girlfriend cracks me up. (laughs) She was less surprised than most people would have been to discover it was a magical translating box. She was more surprised to discover that the boys had possessed the forethought to bring the other dictionaries. <laughs> yeah, so classic. Like, that is that is absolutely them. <laughs> Blue is thinking about how popular the sweet tea is at Nino's. There's a sign in the window promoting it and everything. When she knows there's nothing special about it. And she thinks Raven boys must be easy prey to propaganda. And I'm like, true, but we kind of all are. Yeah, and I'm putting a pin in this for later. (laughs) Adam touched her wrist. She didn't know what to do in response. It's so telling that when she starts dating Gansey, there are none of these questions. Yeah. She just immediately knows. Like, it's just... The distance between Adam and Blue is already really palpable. Uh Uh-huh. Why is the tea so good here? I spit in it. <laughs> yeah. This this is where I love sassy blue. This is good blue. Like, I like blue here. <laughs> the puzzle box felt a lot like Gansey's journal on Glendower. It had been lavishly dreamt, not what she'd expected of Ronan. I mean, that's a good comparison. Right. Again, I feel like all of these are textual clues to say that the box is not from Ronan's head. I guess that's true. Yeah. I love the bit where they put in Blue's name and are confused why the Greek side is blank. <laughs> and then are doubly confused that Ronan knows why it's blank. Yeah. And blue is usually the last color described by any culture because it's so rare in nature. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating. And I'll, I put a link to an article in the show notes, but I don't have time to go into it here. I mean, come on, man. If it was me, I would totally go into detail here. <laughs> Are you kidding? That's what sidebars are for, buddy. (laughs) All right. And then, what the hell, Ronan, said Adam. This is the sound of Adam getting a brain boner. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Shwing. It was hard to imagine how this evidently successful classical education never seems to make it into your school papers. They never (laughs) ask the right questions. (laughs) 
The old gangsy knows that Ronan knows the mystery language. It came from his dreams, after all. And he gets more and more petulant about it every time somebody mentions it. Is it because he knows and doesn't want to talk about it? Or does he really not know when he's awake? Yeah, I feel like he's probably been battered with the same question all day long. Uh-huh. And everyone in the group is making an assumption that it did come from Ronan's head, which if the dreaming is separate or the box was planted as a clue to the will, it likely did not come from Ronan's head. I'm mm-hmm. coming from a particular theory and that may not be a correct theory, but that is how I am interpreting a lot of these passages. Right. And then Ronan says, you don't know shit. He's being aggressive. He's acting out. He's attacking, which we've seen in the past shows that he's scared. Uh-huh. The two of them, Blue and Ronan, have a standoff. And then we get the first real moment of Gansey showing a peculiar protective emotion about Blue. Mm-hmm. To which Blue responds, I don't need you to stand up for me. Don't you, this was directed at Ronan, think I'll let you talk to me like that, especially not just because you're mad that I'm right. And she's getting a little bolder about standing up for herself. Yeah, I do like her standing up particularly to Gansey. Uh-huh. And then Kavinsky. Everything about his facial structure was completely unlike the valley faces she'd grown up with. And that's because he's a Jersey boy and he has a different, i.e. not Scots-Irish, heritage. Yeah, and people tend to get on Maggie's case about this, but isn't this how people think? Implicit bias is an unfortunate but common reality. Like, he doesn't look like the folks that she grew up with. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of the brain sidebar, called the fusiform gyrus that recognizes objects and faces, and it makes snap judgments that it then feeds into the amygdala, which provokes the fight, flight, or freeze response. Mm -hmm. That's just how humans are wired. Mm -hmm. And Harvard has a pretty great test online that will help you identify what implicit biases folks might be carrying around. And I will put a link in the show notes because it's really, really cool. And then I love Kavinsky's iconic look of the sunglasses, spiked hair, earrings, chain white tank top Mm -hmm. it's like blue thinks she hated the smell of him i'd guess axe body spray vodka and cocaine (laughs) i find this to be a really crucial passage he was infamous even at her school you wanted something to get you through your exams he had it you wanted a fake license he could get it you wanted something to hurt you he was it Mm -hmm. and keep in mind that ronan wants nothing more than to be hurt right now right he walked away like she'd never been there what a jerk yeah i mean he is a jerk absolutely Mm -hmm. 100 percent she wasn't sure if she couldn't forgive Kavinsky for always managing to make her feel so insignificant or herself for knowing it was coming and being unable to guard herself against it. And I totally know that feeling. Yeah, I just put a question mark next to the always because that implies that she has had a lot of interactions with Kavinsky. Oh, I mean, sure. Like, yeah. he's well known and, like, he probably comes in. It's the only pizza joint in town. Yeah. <laughs> hating them all. Hating this job. Feeling strangely humiliated. Yeah. Mm. It's another list of three things. And then after this episode, I think I'll stop pointing them out. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's always like, there's so many threes. It's just, it was very interesting. I was like, this, 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 this. It was just really interesting kind of exercise. Then she took a deep breath and filled up table 14's tea. That's number three on the previous list of things that a waitress needs to be able to do. (laughs) So Ronan is, of course, the most affected by Kavinsky showing up. He was knotted with visible tension, ferocious and alive, like when he launched the plane in the field. Kavinsky is a challenge, a chance to prove himself. Yeah, he's reacting to that adrenaline, and it's similar to a crush. Mm-hmm. 
Vernon tries to feign disinterest at the leather bands by asking, like, what should I do with these? But he's obviously affected. Right. And a collection of wristbands identical to the ones he always wore. This is a complicated moment because my interpretation is that, yes, on the surface, it shows Kavinsky's obsession with Ronan, right? Mm -hmm. Kavinsky is, like, kind of bringing gifts to flirt with him, too. That's one layer. Mm -hmm. But far more importantly, Kavinsky is basically giving him a clue and saying, I am a dreamer too. And I've been watching you closely enough to make these perfect. Right. And even I know why you wear these bracelets. I saw it happen. Mm-hmm. And then when Renan's like, oh, what should I do with these? I don't know. Regift them. White rabbit shit. Elephant. Don't bring politics into this dick. Yeah. And I'm just like, that was so funny, Kay. Still dickish, but funny. Yeah, it's it's really funny. I think it's even funnier because he's basically calling Gansey out for being a Republican. Uh-huh. And then he walks away. Enjoy your book club, ladies. All of the books on the table, it's pretty funny. But yes, he's using the feminine as a derogatory term. And we will definitely have to talk about it. toxic masculinity right. with these guys. He didn't even look at Blue as he left. Him not hitting on you is a good thing, she told herself. She felt invisible, unseeable. Is this how Noah feels? Again, I hate people who can make you feel like that. Like, you don't want their attention, but you don't want them to pretend like you don't exist either. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I totally see Noah feeling like that. Yeah. Kavinsky was there on a mission, though, and she was just an obstacle. Right. I'm just saying from, like, Blue's point of view. Right, right. And he's probably done the same kind of shit before. Yeah. The only thing that gives me any joy is imagining the used car dealership that he'll be working in by the time he's 30. I'm oddly saddened by this quote now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he's a jerk, but this would have been a kinder end, maybe? Yeah, Kavinsky may not be the greatest human, but his ending is tragic on all counts. Mm-hmm. And for folks who tend to get up in arms about Kavinsky particularly, it's important to note that none of the antagonists of the Raven Cycle make it out alive, but Kavinsky is definitely the saddest and most tragic no argument. Mm-hmm. Vernon is visibly angry, shaken, his head down, staring at the bracelets, one hand in a fist. And Blue wonders if he knows what Kavinsky's gift means. And I don't think he does just yet. No, it's a clue. Again, Kavinsky is telling Ronan what he is, but Ronan can't see it yet. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Gansey murmured, trouble. Yep, definitely. Right. And you pointed out this is an echo of the last line of chapter three. That's not fun. That's trouble. Uh Also in reference to Kavinsky. Right. Okie dokie. Chapter seven. It's a gray man POV. The gray man goes on an electrical goose chase, leading him to discover some very eerie and unnatural happenings in the outskirts of Henrietta. (laughs) The gray man hated his current rental car. He got the distinct impression it hadn't been handled enough by humans when it was young, and that would never be pleasant to be around. It had already tried to bite him several times. <laughs> oh my god, it's my cat trinket as a car and champagne colored. Right, yeah. It's a similar <laughs> joke to the post that I read last episode about Kavinsky. And Maggie hates rental cars and often drives her own cars cross country. <laughs> yeah. And then an unfortunate and possibly incriminating stain in the back seat. Again, (laughs) his sense of humor really gets to me. (laughs) After dutifully filling the car with Green Mantle's machines and dials, the Gray Man went on an electrical goose chase. Even here, the Gray Man seems to be like media fourth wall aware. Yeah, yeah. 
Shannon, I was just wondering how you felt about the description of Henrietta. Oh, shoot. It was basically the downtown and the Victorians with people, like, sitting on their front porches and... Yeah, we don't really have so much, like, Victorians is more of a, like, further south kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, a a Virginia kind of thing. Right, yeah. Um, But, yeah, just, like, that whole everybody's on their front porch. Mm -hmm. Everybody's (laughs) watching you drive by. Mm -hmm. Everybody probably knows that he's there within two hours. Yeah, it's like, so I'd be sitting on the front porch with my mom and somebody that we didn't know goes by and she would notice it or somebody she didn't know. Who is that? Do you right. know who that is? Right. No, no, no I don't know. Yeah. I've never seen him before. <laughs> yeah. He parked the champagne monstrosity at the corner drugstore, which advertised best tuna fish in town. One, <laughs> champagne monstrosity is yes. a great name for a car. <laughs> and it changes. He, he re-nicknames it throughout the whole book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two, he actually does end up loving the tuna fish here and comes back a lot throughout the series. Yeah. And here's the pin from earlier. Apparently, hitmen are also swayed by propaganda. (laughs) And someone is parked on the Tumblr URL, Champagne Monstrosity, and I'm very upset about it. (laughs) However, if anyone is looking, besttunafishintown.tumblr.com is free. (laughs) Then... The red-lipped lady used a meaty fist to thump the now-dormant milkshake machine. Hey, in the maintenance field, that's called pulling a Fonzie, and sometimes it does work. (laughs) It doesn't work to bring back the power, though. (laughs) She swore in a soft accent that made it sound affectionate. Yep, I've heard people swear like that. The waitress explains here that there have been power problems since the spring, and the gray man immediately picks up on the fact that the power surges have a connection with what he's looking for. Right. She mentions the 4th of July, and all those terrible boys are gone for the summer. Well, most of them. Uh Uh-huh. She says that he should look for the fireworks, but don't be fooled by the Aglianby ones. Some of them boys blow up all kinds of things. Don't know why the sheriff don't stop him. And the gray man was interested in how the plural Aglianby ones suddenly became a singular him. And yeah, like uh, that would catch my interest as well. Mm-hmm. Kavinsky equals infamous, as shown in the previous chapter. Uh-huh. Henrietta Electric Power Company. <laughs> <laughs> I actually used to talk like that, Mm -hmm. and I still do when I talk to home. Yeah, I had a note here to question whether the accent was actually close to that. Yes. The tuna fish was good. It was the only one he'd had since he'd arrived, however, so he couldn't say whether it was the best in town. Right. He's (laughs) pragmatic and logical. Mm -hmm. Everything was painted in the same color palette, ruddy greens and deep red greens. Even the rubbish looked as if it had grown from the sloping hills. Only the mountains looked out of place. Blue mountains on every horizon. Wow. What a perfect description of Appalachia in the summer. Yeah. His phone rang. It was his brother. Short sentences, spaced out, used to ratchet up the tension. Uh It's almost startling to see the gray man who has been all order and composure and nothing but business so far, so utterly shaken by the call from his brother. Right. His stomach wrung itself out. Untangling the wired threads in his gut, he has to stop the car and compose himself. Complex PTSD resulting from fear, abuse, and manipulation. Mm -hmm. The machines start giving him a definite direction and he starts following them. And he's eerily reminded of the foreboding drugstore with the lights off. Right. The vegetable garden rows dying as they get closer to the ley line is so incredibly spooky. Seven impeccable rows flourished. And it's just the number seven. Mm -hmm. The rosebush he finds with twisted shoots clawed from the old canes contorting 
mutated, tinged florid red, looked eerily as if blood ran through them, bristled with malevolent red spines, feels very similar to me to the imagery used to describe the corrupted caves water. Yeah, that whole passage is just really evocative. And as a gardener, it really does almost make me sick to my stomach. Mm -hmm. The rose was growing itself to death. And that is called cancer. Yeah. I'm guessing that the well is some sort of blockage on the ley line, and it's stopping up the energy, and it's corrupting the roads. Uh The gray man was impressed with the deep wrongness of it all. Me too. Yeah. He couldn't see, however, how it could be connected to the gray warren. I actually wonder if the well taps down into the cavern system that goes under Cabe's water and Jesse Ditley's house. It might. Yeah. It was possible, he thought, that the Grey Warren was something that worked in pulses and it had just shut off from its hiding place in the well. But it was more possible, he thought, that this had to do with Hepco's little problem. But it also kind of has to do with the Grey Warren as well. Yeah, and the Grey Warren does work in pulses when he's dreaming. Mm -hmm. But no, he's not in the well, unless Lassie has come to get you to rescue him. Is Ronan in the well, boy? (laughs) And the Grey Man is incredibly perceptive. We said this before. He takes Mm -hmm. a photo of the rose, which later he sends to Green Mantle when he's trying to pretend or prove that the Grey Warren isn't in Henrietta. Mm-hmm. Well, all right, that is that's it. Our, yeah, that's our episode. Well, well, that's the analysis, the analysis section. <laughs> Drum roll. Do you have your? I do. Okay, you remembered who it was. So I was debating between the gray man, but then I decided. Well, I picked the gray man last time. Okay. So I thought maybe blue. Okay. Just because she's standing up for herself a lot and just being more forceful and, like, trying to find herself. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go with Blue. Okay. Who are you going to go with? The Great Man. (laughs) (laughs) The Great Man is my pick. Um, Just because... last time? Declan got it last time. Oh, right, Declan. Yeah. All right, well, let's go to the Great Man this time. Okay. Well, then... Blue's had it before. Blue has had it before. Um, Yeah, the gray man, I think, has the most meat, although there's a lot of Mm -hmm. stuff that comes out with Ronan, obviously, Mm -hmm. and the puzzle box and that sort of thing and the relationship between Ronan and Gansey. But there's just still kind of a lot of exposition in those chapters, whereas the gray man actually has some drive forward, and we get to have some new, like I said, kind of meat to chew on with him. Right. And it's just really cool to see. I don't know at what point in the book you kind of were like liking the gray man. But by now, (laughs) the first time I read it or listened to it, I already liked him. I was already like, this guy is cool (laughs) with me. I'm fine with it. So, yeah. (laughs) Well, all right. That was easy. (laughs) All right. Well, that goes to Maggie Watch. Hi all, Navita here, obviously, but I am doing a drop-in addition to the podcast without Shannon. Boo. But we received some very cool news from a listener after our recording session, so this is a combined Maggie Watch and supporter shout-out all in one. Maggie recently did a four-hour workshop in Edinburgh, and one of our listeners was there and got in touch afterwards with some very cool tidbits. So, a thank you to Twitter user at S. It's Yungi underscore S, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing that right. I did try to look it up. They passed on some anecdotes that will work into our episodes, as well as a piece of news that I hadn't heard before, and they said... 
Oh, and as much as we tried, she wouldn't tell us the date of the Ronin trilogy, but she did say she was working on unrelated graphic novels, which I had never seen before. So that's really, really cool. I know from tags on art from the Raven Boys that she had wanted to do a graphic novel at some point. And I wonder if this could be that mystery project that she's hinted at. Could it be the thing she teased with the Scorpio races or something from Ballad or Lament or something totally new? That would mean that she has at least four projects actively in the works between the TV show, the Dreamer trilogy, the Scorpio Seas tarot deck and the unknown graphic novel. Also, there was some indication on Twitter that the Dreamer trilogy release date will be announced after Christmas. But who knows how long after Christmas? We will have to wait and see, I guess. So thank you again for the scoop, Yungi S. I absolutely love the fact that you thought of us after that amazing workshop. And a note, Maggie is doing more of the writing workshops in the U.S., but unfortunately most, if not all, of them sold out within hours. We are closer to getting a Dreamer Trilogy tour, though, if she's feeling well enough to travel, so... Back to the episode. All right. And I would like to make a request of our listeners, if at all possible. If anyone reads or translates Latin really well, we would love to have you get in contact with us because there is a particular mystery that I'm desperate to have solved. And I don't think Google Translate (laughs) really can do it for us. So just if you have a friend, even if they don't listen to the podcast, even if they've never read The Raven Cycle... I would love someone who might have the skills to do some translations in Latin. Get in touch. And if you wouldn't mind, please do take a look at whatever app you use to listen and see if there's a way to give us a rating or a review. Especially with the kickoff of season two, those new reviews will help us boost the number of people who might see our podcast in a listing. Also, it doesn't have to be iTunes or Apple. You can listen to us through Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, seriously everywhere. And any of those might have a way to leave a rating. I know Google Play does. And I know Stitcher does as Mm -hmm. well, so. And yeah, thank you in advance for that. And we love you all. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we'll wrap everything up. Woohoo! Thank you for listening today. Our next episode will cover chapters 8 through 11 of the Dream Themes with a deep dive on the cultural influence of the Scots-Irish and Appalachia, which is one I am particularly excited about. Yeah. And then our recording schedule is several weeks ahead of the release schedule. So do follow us online for announcements of what chapters we'll be covering next. And do please continue to send us your thoughts questions, contributions, theories, whatever, anything that you might think piques your interest in the episode. Mm -hmm. You can find us practically everywhere on social media at Raven Girls, R-A-V-I-N-G-I-R-L-S, on Twitter at Raven Girls, on Tumblr at ravengirls.tumblr.com, Facebook at facebook.com slash ravengirls, and you can reach us directly at ravengirls at gmail.com. And you can reach me at substanceparty.tumblr.com or via Gmail at substanceparty with all of the A's taken out, S-U-B-S-T-N-C-E-P-R-T-Y at gmail.com. If we have referenced a post or article in the podcast, we will do our very best to include source links to those in the show notes. The Raven Cycle and all affiliated properties are copyright Maggie Stiefvater and Scholastic Incorporated. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. So until next time... Whoop whoop Raven Girls! I still love that. Oh man. (laughs) (laughs) He 
charms effortless. He charms effortless. He charms at. F- <laughs> you do not say that word effortless. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) He charms effortlessly was my note. Uh Uh-huh. And then I lost my place. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Where is it? 